Welcome. Glad you guys are here as we continue our study of walking with Jesus. If you remember, this series is really doing two things. One is we are studying the teachings of Jesus, but we're doing it in kind of chronological and geological, geographical order. So we're kind of following Jesus around during his three years of ministry and then pausing at certain places to study. So I'm excited about uh, this lesson. He's going to go some places that uh, good Jewish boys didn't go. So we'll show you some of those. Let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this evening. We're grateful that we can assemble, grateful that we have this access to study your word, to reason together, to engage our hearts, engage our minds. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you probably know by now, but it is our habit to keep showing you this number. It's also on your handout. But if you want to text questions to this number during class, we try to answer as many as we can, and I apologize. I know we can't get to all of them, but we try to uh, do as many as we can. So text your questions to that number. In this lesson, we are in late into the second, maybe early third year of Jesus' ministry. We left him up north Israel in the Galilee, kind of around that Golan Heights area, which is what we call it now. And uh, it was a tense place to be then, and it's apparently quite a tense place to be right now. So we're going to see Jesus breaking some molds, and he's going to answer a question. And I want to follow a little thread through this teaching. We're going to look at some miracles that Jesus did. I want to talk about, first of all, why did Jesus do these miracles? These miracles weren't necessarily so that you and I would believe the gospel. I mean, they validated in some, to some extent what he said, but the miracles weren't really intended so that, oh, well, Jesus did miracles, what he said must be true, so 2,000 years later, I'm going to believe the gospel. Not really the main point of the miracles. So I want to talk about why is he doing these miracles. But there's another thread that runs through this, and it's actually been running through his whole ministry, but it begins to be very apparent in this lesson, and that is, who is Jesus? Up to this time, people don't know what to make of him. They know that he's something special. They know that he preaches with authority. They realize this is a prophet. This is, could this be the Messiah? And Jesus doesn't validate their answers. I mean, what their, their ideas. He's not saying, oh yeah, no, you're right, I am the Messiah, or I came to do this. He's really left this intentionally in limbo. And you're gonna see there's a reason for that, and that is as people begin to come to the realization of who Jesus is, he is slowly revealing himself. Well, in this lesson, to do that, he's going to go to an interesting place. Here's a map of Israel, in the time of Jesus and those provinces, the names of the states or the provinces there are the Roman provinces, the name, because this area of the world is ruled by the Romans. And so in our last lesson, we went to uh, some of these small towns up here in the Galilee. Jesus was up around the west side of the Sea of Galilee. We went to, if you remember, we spent some time in a, uh, the ruins, some magnificent ruins of a synagogue in Chorazin, one of the towns that he did preach in, and we looked at what he was doing there. Well, in this lesson, he's going to shed some light on the question of who is Jesus? Who is he and what is he about? But to do it, he is going to go into the land of the unbelievers. So 
This area, I'm circling Judea. That is the southern province of Israel. Those are where most of the Jews lived. You have this province in the middle called Samaria. They used to be Jewish and now are very, because of some things that happened 700 years before, very ethnically mixed. They do claim to be Jews and to worship like Jews, but they do it in a very hybrid sort of way. And so the Jews in Judea hated the Samaritans. So they're not even called Jews, they're called Samaritans. Then north into the Galilee area, this area around the Sea of Galilee, there are a lot of Jewish people living there in the north. These other territories that you can see, Perea, modern-day Jordan, up here around Tyre, I'm going way to the north now, that's Phoenicia, but it's modern-day Lebanon. And then the Decapolis is a really interesting area, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, but those are not Jewish areas. That Phoenicia, the Decapolis, Perea, which is modern-day, again, like I say, modern-day Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River, those are not Jewish areas. Very small Jewish communities. And so the Jewish prophets didn't spend any time there. I mean, they were wanting the Jewish people. But in this lesson, Jesus is going to go, uh, he is going to go from Galilee up to Tyre in Phoenicia. He's gonna go up a little more off this map to Sidon. So both of those are in Lebanon today. Then he's going to come back and he's gonna go into the Decapolis. The Decapolis is an area, it literally means the 10 cities. And I'm gonna show you a map that's a little bit of a close-up of that area. So I wanna kinda of give you a feel for what life was like in these non-Jewish areas. And I wanna to go to a town, and the reason I wanna to go to this particular town is because the ruins are magnificent. This town called Scythopolis. It's here in the area of the Decapolis. It's mainly Greek people, but it's really a mix, but not many Jews there. The culture is not Jewish. It's not so much a village style of life. Things are very different there. This city of Scythopolis was founded during the time of uh, Alexander the Great, when the Greeks ruled this entire part of the world. And Scythopolis is, was a Greek city, then the Romans came in, took over this part of the world, and that's the time period that we're in, in the time of Jesus. And so you see this city I'm about to show you is a Greco-Roman city. And it looks remarkably like a modern American city, and it looks nothing like a Jewish city. So I wanna give you a feel for the people and the culture of the Decapolis because that's where Jesus is going to go. It's the most unlikely place far and away the most unlikely place for a Jewish prophet to go. So let's take a few pictures. First, just a big picture view of this area. Now, this is just what's been excavated. This is downtown Scythopolis. All of these modern buildings back here, I'm kind of showing you this area around it. There's all kinds of stuff underneath there. This city goes a long way. Probably 80 to 100,000 people lived here. I mean, it's a big city. I mean, in those days, that's like a city of four or five million now. I mean, it was a big city at that time. Well, because Greco-Roman cities are all laid out according to a pretty logical plan, 
once you find something, you can kind of tell where everything else is. And so fortunately, they excavated downtown. They're continuing their excavations, but those people that live in those houses are, just don't want them destroying their houses and digging. I don't understand that. But seriously, this is, I want to show you just a little geography. I'm going to give you the main street. It's called the Cardo. Here's another main street that crosses it. You can see the bathhouses and gymnasium here. There's a magnificently preserved theater. There's an amphitheater that I'll show you. This large area here is the marketplace, the Agora. It's huge. It's like a combination between Walmart and the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, any kind of business happened there. So that's kind of the general layout of the city. Let's take a little more close-up looks at some of this. So again, this is the main street that we were talking about. And what you see is they've put some of the pillars back up there. The same here on this street. There were huge temples and city, beautiful city buildings all along here. You could see the ruins. When you get into it, you can see how unbelievably intricately carved all this is. This is a magnificent city. The reason that most of this is still here, by the way, and the reason they were able to set some of these columns back up is this place was destroyed in an earthquake 700 years later than the time of Jesus. But because it was all destroyed quickly in an earthquake and then silted over, this is unbelievable how well preserved this is and the archeology span keeps going on. Let me give you another shot of this. Again, looking back down at the area of Scythopolis. So you see these beautiful pillars here along this street, and you can imagine the Temple of Zeus, the administrative buildings, county jail, you know, whatever. All the civic buildings are downtown. But I wanted you to see how much this looks like. What do you have downtown? You have this Agora, the marketplace. You have all these city buildings. You have these magnificent structures here. I mean, there were big overhangs here. You've got where the thunder would play, you know, in the, amp in the theater there. In other words, you have your entertainment, you have your social things, you have business, you have government. That could be an American city. It's laid out exactly like American cities. Let me show you a couple of other pictures, and then I want to draw a couple of conclusions from that, because I want you to see how unusual it is for Jesus to be in this place. This is an amphitheater, and most of it's not there. Imagine that it had seats all the way around it. Think like an arena, you know, like the arena that you go watch a basketball team in. It's got seats all the way around. Those were destroyed in the uh, earthquake, but that arena is, in the theater, you would see plays, you would see comedies, you would see entertainment. In the arena, you would see sporting events, but you would also see gladiators fighting you would see Christians being fed to the lions. And as a matter of fact, I wanna show you this little piece right here, give you a little close up. This is kind of a stark reality. You see those doorways? You notice there are two heights of doorways there? What do you suppose the small doorway is for? The lions. What do you suppose the big doorway is for? The Christians. And so even the design of this, you can tell how this was used. So it was used for gladiators until those were outlawed in the Roman uh, provinces, and it was later used for Christians being fed, to, literally fed to the lions. And so that tended to happen in their arenas. They're called amphitheaters, but in these arenas. 
Here's another great view of Main Street. This is really unbelievable technology for the time. Think about businesses all being in here behind these beautiful columns, big civic building back here. Uh, there's big awnings you know, over this. There's actually even plumbing underneath that street. There's a sewer system in this city. I mean, it very, feels very modern to us. It's a very modern kind of a city. So let me talk about it for a second. Here's also a great view that you can see of the Agora. That is a huge place for commerce. So just thinking about the contrast, we've done some lessons about this, but I want you to think about it. Jesus is coming out of the Jewish world. When we were in Chorazin in our last lesson, you may not remember this, but the middle of that village was that synagogue. It was the highest place. It was by far the nicest building in that village, and then all of the houses were around it. I mean, it might have been a big village, but that would have been the center part of the village. And the geography of cities tells you a lot about the values of the culture. So for example, in a Jewish village, what's at the center geographically of the village is God. I mean, it's the synagogue. And that's the nicest building. People put their money into that building, so it would be God. Their entertainment life, you don't see theaters, you don't see amphitheaters, you don't see hippodromes. Hippodromes are where they have the chariot races. You don't see any of that in those Jewish villages. Jewish life centered around the family and the extended family and neighborhoods. And so you saw God at the center, you saw that their entertainment, their cultural transmission of values was storytelling in the families. The family was the basic social unit. And then finally, the Bible was their method of transmitting values and faith, and not just faith, but also stories. Every culture, I don't want to be too philosophical, but if you think about it, every culture has stories that exemplify their values. And that, for example, if I said to you, how do you know what is true and noble in America? Well, you would probably tell me some stories, stories of the founders of this country or stories of soldiers who had given their lives for the freedoms that we have. We tell stories that exemplify what we hold. Freedom is a value. Human dignity is a value to our country. In other words, you could go down the list, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Those are core values of our culture, American culture and America. This culture of the Jews had, its values were transmitted by the Bible. In other words, what God believes is who we are and is how we think and what the values that God has are the values that our culture has. Then our social life is built around family and extended family, and the center of our lives is what is at the center of our village, and that's God. Look at this city. This is a typical Greco-Roman city. You get out of the Jewish areas, this is the kind of city you see, and what can we learn from this city? Well, first of all, what's in the middle of this city? The Agora. The middle of this city is the place where you conduct business. If God is at the center of the Jewish village, money and commerce are at the center of a Greco-Roman city. It is a much more materialistic culture. Now, I'm not trying to be judgmental about that. I'm just making the observation. You walk into a Jewish village, 
and you see the biggest, nicest building is God's building. You walk into a Greco-Roman city and you see that the biggest, nicest, the best prime real estate is the stock exchange. You're gonna go, hey, that's telling me something about what these cultures value. And so commerce is at the center of the value system of the Greco-Roman culture. You also see, as far as family and the entertainment, over here you can't see it in this one, but there is the bathhouse. And the social structure is no longer, the houses are a long way away from downtown. They're out in the quote suburbs. And so when you wanted to interact with people, you left home, you got in your car, you opened the garage door, you drove downtown, parking terrible, just like it is today. And so you'd park and you'd go into the combination bathhouse YMCA social center. That's where social interactions happen. They happen outside the home. So you can imagine that when it comes to transmitting cultural values to kids, it's not happening so much in the home. Is this sounding familiar to you? This is American culture. I mean, we are children of the Greeks and the Romans in terms of how we think about this. And so children's formative things are happening outside of the home and social is happening outside, not in the family unit. And then finally, this by the way is you're sitting in the theater. And this is one of the most magnificently preserved theaters. Every, all of those seats are original, they're all 2,000 years old. All that backdrop, that's not all the backdrop on the stage down there. Is It used to be much bigger, but they're putting it back up because it all fell down. But that is a magnificent uh, theater. And so the theater, by the way, had another row of seats up here. Those were destroyed and then silted over, but they looked just like this. You could hold about eight to 10,000 people in this theater. And all of the plays, all of the entertainment was free. And the reason for that was, if you think about it, where did the cultural values get transmitted in the Jewish village from the Bible? They studied the Bible in school, they read the Bible at home, they told the Bible stories. This is where cultural values got transmitted in a Greco-Roman culture and in that city through its entertainment. If this is not sounding eerily familiar to you, you know, we wake up, this is America. We transmit our values through entertainment. We just have a fancier form called television, right? And internet. We do our socializing primarily outside of our homes and our cities are built the same way. Government buildings and financial centers are what we have at the beginning. So the reason to say that is not to be critical of America, it's simply to say we stand in that same line. So what I'm about to say to you about Jesus going into this place is exactly the same as you and I, Christ followers, going into our world. Even though this looks like an ancient world, culturally, geographically, it's identical to 21st century America. So as Jesus, the Jewish prophet, goes into these non-Jewish areas, taking with him the truth of the gospel, he's going into a place that culture is radically different. When you and I walk out of this place and we go into our culture, we too are taking the gospel values into a culture that's radically different. That's part of why what Jesus is doing here is so relevant today. Okay, that's getting preachy, so let's move on. I wanna talk to you about two things he did while he was here in this area, this Decapolis. He, by the way, 
went to the place that is far off. The way the Jews referred to Gentiles, it was never polite. Uh, basically, they referred to them as those ethnic people. And, you know, all those weird ethnic people, they called them the people that are far away from God. You know, I mean, it's just, it's very blunt. Like, we're God's people, you're not. And so you don't go there. I mean, Jews don't go to these places because you can't eat kosher here. I mean, you can, you're tempted with prostitutes on the street corners and this kind of entertainment and the value system. It would just be so radically different. But this is where Jesus goes. He goes to a far off place. And he goes to a culture that's not his own. And he does a couple of things and he does them very intentionally. So let's look at a couple of stories that happen here in this Greek area. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. That's where I started. He was in Lebanon, not Jewish. He went down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So this area we've been talking about. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man. Well, after Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd, interesting that there are still crowds that have heard about Jesus. There's always been interest in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, but there's always been interest. I mean, stop and think about it. This is a sideline, I admit, but I'll make it brief. Stop and think about this. Why, does it ever occur to you, why do we have militant atheists in our culture? Does that not seem strange to you? That is the, that's one of the strangest things ever to me. Because you have people who are Christ followers speaking gospel values into the culture. Then you have, it's a big wave in, in our culture right now, militant atheists, militant secularists. Not only are they saying, I don't agree with you, I think you know, we were all the product of random mutations, et cetera, and you know, express a secular worldview. I respect that point of view. It's wrong, but I, I respect that point of view. And so instead of saying, hey, I disagree with you guys. This is the way we think, and I'm going to have to vote this way, and you can vote that way. And hey, that's how we do things here in America. That's not what's happening, is it? It's like, hey, we believe this, and we hate what you believe. In fact, we'll do what we can to shut you up. Does that not seem strange to you? It doesn't to me in this way is Jesus Christ, people have never been able to be neutral about Jesus Christ. Stop and think about it. If you don't believe in Jesus, why do you care? I mean, why do you care? It's like, okay, you believe in this Jesus guy, I don't. I'm gonna get on about my life, you get on about your life. And by the way, you guys seem like real nice people. So we should be able to be good neighbors with each other. That's not what you see happening in the culture. And it's not what you see happening in this culture either. People either are really forced to react to Jesus so here, these people are reacting positively. They think this guy can heal him. So Jesus took him aside, away from the crowd. He put his fingers on the man's ears, and he spat and touched the man's tongue. He didn't spit in his tongue. He spat on the ground, touched the man's tongue, looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. Now remember, these are not Jews. They said, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is interesting to me. Why is Jesus here in the first place? I think one of the big reasons is Jesus is, is with his feet and with his geography is sending a message. He's telling you what he's about. Because in the Jewish experience, 
messages from God came to the Jewish people and prophets were there for Jewish people and healers were there to heal Jewish people. Jesus, by going to this area, is visibly saying to them, my message, this message from God, is even for those who are far away from God. It's even for the non-Jews. The fact that he's here, the fact that he's doing a miracle here, is saying something pretty profound about the ubiquity of the gospel. It isn't just for Jewish people. This is going to be for everyone. And if you think about it, you take that for granted. Christianity is exclusive in the technical sense that there are boundaries. There are people who are Christians, there are people who are not Christians. Duh, every belief system, every even secular belief systems have that. But Christianity is inclusive. In fact, I'm gonna argue it's the most inclusive religion because anyone can become a Christ follower. And, you take, and I take that for granted. That was not taken for granted at this time. And so Jesus is visibly doing something to shake that up. And that's why I think he's doing that miracle in this place. But why here and why do the miracles at all? If you think about it, Jesus does, I'm going to show you the next miracle is going to be another prototypical kind of thing Jesus did. Jesus did certain kinds of miracles and he didn't do other kinds of miracles. Now stop and think about it. If the miracles were just to get you to believe in God, I would not heal a deaf mute guy. I mean, to me, you know, you might get on 60 minutes for that. Maybe Oprah picks it up one week, but honestly, that's not that big a deal. Here's what I would suggest. I would suggest out of the middle of nowhere, you literally snap your fingers and there is Mount Everest. Literally, people go, you have got to be kidding me. There is no way that happened naturally. Mount Everest just popped up in the middle of Saudi Arabia. Oh, you don't believe me? Go look at it. I mean, this is a miracle. This guy can control nature. I'd have the cow jumping over the moon. You know, I'd write, Jesus is the Messiah on the moon, right? And people go, look, you know, well, I'm being a little facetious, but you get my point. If you are God and you really can do anything supernatural. In other words, you can do things that do not appear to be in accord with nature, which by the way, this healing is not in accord with nature. Some of Jesus' healings cannot be explained away, no matter how hard we try. But my point is, why doesn't he do something like that? Well, I think there's two reasons. Jesus isn't doing miracles just to impress people. He's doing miracles to send a message. So what does this one send? And then when you see the next one, you'll really get this. What is this miracle? Why do this? Here's what, you're gonna see this happen over and over, and it's all through the Bible. Jesus is doing something small, something temporal, to foreshadow something eternal and something cosmic in scale. All over the Bible. We talked about the Exodus motif, I'll come back to that in a minute. Things that are happening here on earth are foreshadowing big things. Earthly things are being used to foreshadow heavenly spiritual things. If you can heal this man's body, it lends credibility to the outrageous claim that he's going to make, and that is, I cannot just heal your body. I can, your soul will live forever. You will not ultimately die. Now, that's a big claim, isn't it? 
is that you will live forever. You could go to heaven. You will be eternal. I can't see that, but I can see this. And I go, well, if you can heal the body, maybe you really can heal the soul. Does that make sense? He's going to do something supernatural in a temporal way to foreshadow his real claims are much bigger than that. That's why you see Jesus do so many healings of people's bodies. So many healings that are just, you've got to be kidding me. This man's been was born blind, and now he can see. This man's been lame for 38 years, and now he can walk. It's remarkable. And he goes, yeah, and now I'm going to make a claim that's even more remarkable. But now I'm ready to hear it, aren't I? Questions about that? Yes. In verse 33, where it says Jesus spit and touched the man's tongue, why is that there? What does that mean? Yeah, so when it talks about Jesus spitting and Jesus touching the man's tongue, why are those things there? That's really, really an interesting question. And we really don't have time to go into all the really interesting pieces of it. So let me just give you the, I mean, it really is interesting. There's all kinds of, well, I don't want to go into it. It'll take a long time, but it's really fascinating. Email me if you want to know more. But basically, what happens here is, think about this. He could have said something to the guy. The guy's deaf. Right, so he pulls him aside, he touches his ears. Why does he touch his ears? I think because the guy can't hear. He's like, hey, you. He's like, what's happening here? He's like, just watch. Ears? Yes, ears. Tongue? Yeah, tongue. You're gonna talk. I mean, I, I think he's doing this physically, whereas most of Jesus' healings, he just speaks, and it happens. You know, do you believe, or demon, come out of this person, or do you believe that you can be well? Well, very well then, you will be well. I mean, he doesn't need to touch them. But I think with this guy who can't hear, he touches his ears, can't speak, touches his tongue. The spitting on the ground is an interesting little pattern that happens. I don't really know exactly why he did this. A couple theories, but nobody knows that for sure. But I think he touches his ears, touches his mouth, looks to heaven and sighs and says, be opened. And then the guy literally can hear and speak. So it's a little cryptic. The spitting part is a little cryptic. And why does Jesus tell him not to tell anyone? You know, that's a great question. Why does Jesus, and by the way, Jesus does this a lot, tells him not to tell anyone. Okay, think about it. If you said, I mean, it doesn't work. Why? Because these people are ingrates. But basically, think about what he's trying to do. The more famous he gets for doing these healings actually is counterproductive to Jesus. Pretty quickly, you're going to see that the crowds, a matter of fact, in the next miracle, you're going to see that the crowds become a real burden to Jesus. What is Jesus really here for? Is he here to heal people? No, not mainly. Is he going to heal people? Sure. Why? Because he's saying, I want you to see, I'm making, I got a much bigger fish to fry. I'm here for a much bigger reason than you can imagine. Not just to heal your body. I'm here to set your soul free from the one who owns a mortgage on your soul. I'm going to set you free so that you can live in eternity in heaven. So that's Jesus' purpose. So the healings point to that, and they validate what he's saying, but actually having all these people following you around, that is not good for him. So Jesus wants to do these things, but until he is uh, crucified and resurrected, he has not finished his goal. So it, gets, it kind of gets in the way of Jesus' ministry. And I think that's why he's telling people, listen, I'm not out for publicity. I'm here to make a point. Good question. Do you know how long the excavations took at Scythopolis? 
I don't remember, I can look that up, and usually when we go to Israel, I try to have those little facts on hand. I don't remember when they first started excavating that. It's been a while. I mean, you don't do that overnight, and it's there's usually something on top of it that has to be relocated. I don't not happen to remember how long it's been at Scythopolis, but it's getting better and better. Every time, every year we go, it's there's more and more uncovered. Yeah, I don't have the date, but I think it began in the 80s. Yeah, so maybe in the 1980s, so 30, 40 years worth. They Some of these sites have been excavated for about 100 years. It's just slow. Sometimes it can be slow. But this site, what, what the Israel Antiquities Authority does, totally off the subject. But basically, you can't excavate everything in Israel. I mean, there's way too much stuff there. So they will take certain sites that are very prototypical, and they will really develop them. Those go quickly. So Scythopolis, instead of, there are other cities like Scythopolis in that area, but they're like, well, let's pour our money into this one, and then you can see what they would all look like. That's a smart move on their part. So they tend to excavate them a little more quickly that way. Thanks. You're not only question asker, you're research assistant. We're going to have to give her a raise. That's really good. Okay, second thing. This also happened in this area, in the Decapolis. Again, this is not amongst the Jews. During those days, a large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days. He's got four, it's gonna be 4,000 men. So who knows how many people that is. Seven, 8,000 people easily. He's got that many people following him around. They've been following him for three days. Now, I don't know about you, but that is tough to get into Luby's when you got 7,000 people with you. You know, it's tough to do your ministry. I mean, these crowds are just flocking to him. He says, I have compassion for them. They've been with me for three days and they don't have any food. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come from a long distance. His disciples said, we're in a remote place. How can anybody possibly get enough bread to feed them? He says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he told the crowd to sit on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves, he gave thanks. He broke them, gave them to disciples, set before the people, and they did. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them and did the same. The people ate and were satisfied. In other words, everybody got all they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left. About 4,000 men were present, and after he fed them, he sent them away, got into the boat, and went to the region of Dalamanuth. It's basically the other side of the lake, back into the Jewish area. This is an interesting miracle. Now, if you remember, Jesus feeds the 5,000. That happens in the Jewish area. And it's similar, but not exactly the same as this. So a couple of reasons of what's, what's going on here. One is the fact that he's feeding these people in this place is, I brought bread to the Jews. And that's where he said, I am the bread of life. And he did the same thing to the Gentiles. And it's again saying, my gospel, my provision, God's love is not just for a small group of people. It includes all those people you used to think that God wouldn't accept. They too have the opportunity to follow me. And so the fact that he did this miracle there is a sign that the gospel is also going to be for the Gentiles. The fact that he did bread and feeding them that's really significant. I want you to remember this Exodus motif. I don't have time to explain the whole thing, but I've told you that Jesus' ministry was foreshadowed by the Exodus. Think 1400 BC, Charlton Heston, Yul Brynner, 
goes in front of Pharaoh, let my people go, takes the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. They go through the desert for 40 years. They arrive at the promised land of Israel and enter the land of Israel. Okay, that's all happening about 1,400 years before Jesus. But the themes that happened in that story get repeated in Jesus' ministry. Why? Because in the Exodus, what you have is the real, real historical events of a people who are enslaved, having a deliverer sent to them. God is the one that judges the gods of Egypt. They don't fight. They don't pick up their AK-47s. God fights the battle, brings them out, takes them through the desert to purify their faith, and brings them into the promised land. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do on a cosmic scale. God sends his deliverer to take all of those who are enslaved to sin, and he is going to judge the gods of this world and overcome the gods of this world on the cross, and he is going to lead us into the promised land, eternity in heaven. The Exodus is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. Well, do you remember one thing that happened in the Exodus? They get out into the desert, and all of a sudden they look around and they go, there is no fast food out here. And in fact, there's nothing out here, we are going to die. And so what God does is every morning, I'm shortening this and I'm making it slightly inaccurate for you Bible scholars, but basically every morning they wake up and there is this stuff called manna, like dew on the ground and it's bread. They take it and they cook it and they eat that. And every morning, if it doesn't show up, they're going to be hungry. And if it doesn't show up for several days, they're going to die. And yet God, every morning, gives them just enough for that day. That's why Jesus, I'm convinced, that's why Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. What's God training them to do? Faith. You need to have faith that I can meet your physical needs. Jesus is showing them by giving them bread. I mean, this is so so much the exodus happening. This is the modern version of manna. He said, if I can give you bread, which is what you need to stay alive, I cannot, if I can keep your body alive and I can make bread anytime I want to, well, that's why they're following him like, hey, we're never gonna be hungry again, which was a big deal for them. They were hungry a lot. Like this guy literally can supernaturally feed 4,000 plus of us. Jesus' point is, just like the manna in the desert, I can, I can nourish your physical body. Now, will you believe that if I can miraculously do that, I can nourish and I can save your souls for eternity? You see, this healing and the feeding are the same point. It's foreshadowing. It's saying, I'm going to make an outrageous claim to you. I'm going to tell you that I can tend your soul. You will live forever. You will overcome death. And here's my down payment. I'm gonna miraculously feed you and I could keep you alive and give you all the food that you need. That's why he's doing that miracle. That's why the bread is there. It's a foreshadowing of the, what he can do spiritually as well as what he can do physically, okay? Those two miracles, the fact that he does them in the Gentile areas says something that's profound and that is God's love, God's good news is available to everyone. Anyone can repent and follow Jesus Christ. That wasn't true up until that point. I mean, that just was not the way religion worked up till that point. And the fact that he's doing those miracles are specifically designed for, to, be, to validate the truth claims that he's making. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. 
But let's go to the second place he goes while he's here. This is another really interesting place. This town called Caesarea Philippi, that is not a very Jewish place. Uh, Philip, who is the, one of Herod's kids, he's the ruler of this area. And Caesarea is named after Caesar. It's just an obvious attempt to curry favor with Augustus Caesar, built several years before. So he named it after himself and after Caesar. These guys had no shortage of ego whatsoever. But that city was a very Roman, Greco-Roman city. And Jesus is going to take his disciples to that place, and something really unusual happens there. Again, this is another place that you don't go. But I want to show you something that's at this place. You've probably seen this before, but basically, this is near the city of Caesarea Philippi. And this big cliff, this place is called Benias. It's technically ancient times. It was called the place of Pan. Pan was one of the Greek and Roman gods. He was uh, half goat, half man. God of shepherds, uh, lusty little guy. I mean, rated X. I mean, his exploits, he was kind of the God of sex. The, uh, really, the God of lust. Think of it that way. And so there was a temple here to Pan. There's also, in this place, I'll show you another picture of the cliff face there. There's also a big cave right here. And so... This place also came to be known as one of the entrances to the underworld. So you have the god of sex, Pan, and there's a temple there for hundreds of years. And I'll show you some places where they used to put the statues of Pan, that sort of thing. But in that cave, here's what they thought. They thought that Hades was a place. And by the way, almost everywhere in the New Testament that's translated hell is really the word Hades. And the reason for that is the New Testament's trying to use language they understood to teach them a concept. Hades was a place, to Greeks and to Romans, it was, a, it was the place under the earth. And it was the place you would go when you died. It wasn't necessarily bad, but it definitely wasn't necessarily good. In other words, it was a place where you just sort of roamed around for the rest of your existence. And there weren't any good things. It was sort of like going from, you know, high-def 3D color to 1950s TV set with black and white. It was a very bland kind of life. It was sort of like, well, that's what happens when you die. You just go wander around the underworld. You know, it's just not very good. So that was a place, but then it became personified into a god. So who runs Hades? A god named Hades, right? So they name a god after the place, and he's in charge of the underworld. And this is kind of a, and Jesus is going to use those ideas to explain to them, that's not true. That's what they thought. He's going to use those words to explain to them what is true. Oh, there is a ruler of the dead, uh, those who's, who's are slaves to sin, and his name is Satan. And there is a place that you go, your soul is eternal, and it's called Hades or hell. In other words, he co-opted their ideas. Well, since they thought it was a specific place, when you died, you had to have some way to get there. Caves like this, they thought literally were openings into the underworld. And that's where you would go when you were died. And so that's one of the gates to Hades. It's one of the places you would go when you died. So you have death and sex, death and lust. That's what this place was about, those gods. Let me show you a couple other pictures. These niches, by the way, are where you would see the statues of Pan, and they are magnificent. 
carved. And this is a much bigger niche, so you would have had a big statue in here. And then off to the side over here are some more temple areas. But then to the left, you see the cave. And it goes down into what they thought was the underworld, into this cave. So Jesus brings his disciples to this place and has this interesting interaction, which you may be familiar with, but I want to put it into this context. So Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this place. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am? Because he's been revealing himself, I mean, manna, giving people bread, healing people. He's giving these little hints that, of something much, much bigger than this. But he hasn't been overt about it because his mission is not convincing everybody that's alive at that time he's the Messiah. His mission is the cross and the empty tomb. So he says, who do they say you are? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say you're Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who's come back from the dead. Still others, maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. That's a Greek word. It literally means Messiah. That's a Hebrew word. So you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind or permit on earth will be bound or permitted in heaven, and whatever you loose or forbid on earth will be loosed or forbidden in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he is the Christ. Why? Because his point is the cross. He's leaving all these interesting hints for everybody afterwards to look at and go, oh, I see the whole story. Jesus can't be understood without the cross and the empty tomb. So he tells them that. This is an interesting miracle because think about what this place is. And it's very applicable to us. Just like in the first set of miracles, he goes into a culture whose values he doesn't share and he begins to tell the truth about God can heal your soul. God can nourish your life, not just your physical life, but your eternal life. And he goes and he takes that message in the form of miracles to that culture. So do you and I. We go out into a culture whose values we don't share and we go speak God's truths to that culture. Here, we do the same thing. That, that place was representative of the power of Rome, the power of lust and human desires, and the power of death. That place represented man's earthly, corrupted, fallen nature and his doom, which is death. And that, of all the cultures in the world, every culture in the world has, a and every person in the world has a basic fundamental motivation and desire. This explains almost all of human behavior in the world. For security and for some kind of alleviation of the fear and the dread of death. The certainty and the fear and the dread of death and the desire to have the things that I want drive base human behavior. And every culture in the world has to come to grips with that. What is Jesus saying here? He said, 
Death looks really powerful. Lust looks really powerful. And I want you to stop and think about our culture for a minute. If they thought lust was powerful in those days, they hadn't seen anything yet compared to our culture. It's addicting our children at an alarming rate. And death is still as certain as it ever was. You can live longer today, but we will all die. We're all afraid of it, and we all dread the ultimate separation of death. So we speak into a culture that has the exact same fears and motivations as the one Jesus was speaking to. So what is he saying? He's sitting there literally at the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, death, sitting there right there in the power of Satan in the culture, the power to appeal to our base human desires, greed, lust, self-centeredness. And what does he say? I'm going to establish my church. We are going to, the gospel, the kingdom of God has come into the world and even the gates of hell can't overcome it. That is a profound claim. What he is saying is, he's saying the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, Paul says, if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead, there is no point in being a Christian. Not everybody will agree with that today. They're wrong, but not everybody will agree with that. They'll say, oh, there's still value in being a Christian. You could be a nice person by being like Jesus. Paul says, forget that. That's not the best way to deal with death. If Christ is not raised, our belief, our faith is in vain. What Jesus is saying the same thing, he says the kingdom of God cannot be overcome by death. What that says is you will live forever. Death is not the end. And not only that, I can nourish your soul. You're not gonna go wander around in the underworld in a little black and white two-dimensional world. You are going to be joyful in the presence of God. That is an astounding claim. I mean, that is Jesus' basic truth claim. That is the basic idea of what Christians believe. The basic idea is not the Sermon on the Mount, be nice to your neighbor, pray for people, forgive people. Those are all absolutely true. That's describing what life looks like in this kingdom. But the fundamental argument for the kingdom is death no longer holds sway over you. And that's what he's saying. And he took them to the most secular place he could find, the most visible sign of death and lust, and he said that is not strong enough to overcome the good news of the gospel, and the truth that you can indeed overcome death. That is the same claim that you and I take into our culture. It looks really strong. Our government looks strong. Oppression looks strong. Uh, lust looks overwhelmingly strong. The desires of our bodies and the chasing after security and money and fame and power and self-centeredness look strong, and death is as strong as ever. And yet we go into that exact same culture with that exact same claim. It's like Jesus Christ has overcome death and he has made a way for us to be free from sin, to be free from Hades. Even Hades, even hell cannot hold us. That's the thread that's kind of running through what Jesus is doing. And the fact that he's doing it outside the Jewish areas was meant as a message to you and me. And that was, you and I weren't born the chosen people, were we? I wasn't. I don't know. I haven't done the genetic thing. Maybe I got a little Jewish blood, but I don't think it's enough to get in. You know, I mean, I think we are not the, quote, chosen people, and yet that, we're exactly who Jesus is talking to. 
He said, this gospel is for all of you. And do you believe? When it says you're saved by grace through faith, what are you, have you ever wondered, what am I actually having faith in? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I hope you have because you're Christians, or at least many of you are. But seriously, in all seriousness, you're saved by what? By God's grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. It says, uh, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you believing in? That he existed? Everybody believes he existed. That's a matter of historical record. What is it we're actually believing in? We believe he could do miracles? Well, a lot of non-Christians believe he probably did miracles. Jesus says, do you believe there's only one God? So, well, demons believe that, and I don't think you're going to meet any of them in heaven. So what is it you're actually believing in? You are believing in the most outrageous claim ever made in the history of humanity, and that is death is not the end, that you can overcome death itself. And so Jesus is making this claim about eternity, and he's making it through all these hints that he's giving, all these foreshadowings, if you will, that he's making. So that's the essential belief that we have. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he can do what he says he can do? That's what it means to, be, to believe in Jesus Christ. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why we usually ask that for people when they're baptized. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Fundamental confession of the Christian faith. Islam has a fundamental confession. Judaism has a fundamental confession. This is the fundamental confession, is you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what you say truly is real. It is the nature of reality. That's what we believe. And that's the message that is as powerful in our culture as it was in Jesus' culture. So the point I'm trying to make in this really is I want you to see beyond just the events and see that Jesus has a purpose. He has a purpose in his geography, to go out into these places nobody would go, to talk to Gentiles nobody would talk to, to confront a culture that was very different than his own, because you and I are gonna have that same experience. And he also had a purpose in the very miracles he was doing were leading up to what his final claim would be, and that is, I will show you that even death cannot hold those who belong to me. That's the best news anybody could possibly hear. Otherwise, it's live your life, then you die. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. That's the best the secular culture has to offer. The essence of Christianity is believing Jesus' claim that that is not true. Truth is, if you belong to me, I have overcome death, and so can you, and we can live forever. Does that make sense? It's just interesting seeing the profound things Jesus is doing, and I want you to see him intentionality in this, a great deal of intentionality in what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is revealing himself. This is kind of what I want to close with, because I want to give you and me the same challenge. C.S. Lewis said this, like I've told you before, Jesus divides people. There are not many people that are neutral about Jesus. Do this experiment this week. When you're in an elevator, say on your way to work, on the way up in the elevator, and there are four or five people, and I know we don't like to talk to each other, we just kind of like to pretend that nobody else exists, but turn, have you ever turned around in an elevator and faced people? Oh, it freaks people out, big time, big time. So turn around and face them and just say, how do you guys feel about Jesus Christ? You are going to get 
reactions. I'm going to predict nobody says, eh, take it or leave it. People have opinions about Jesus Christ. Well, C.S. Lewis was an atheist, as you probably know, and he thought this through. Now, there are people today that want to say Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was just a good guy, kind of like Gandhi. The problem with that is, as C.S. Lewis investigated, is Jesus doesn't give you that opportunity because that's not who he said he was. C.S. Lewis says if you read what Jesus said, he's got to be one of three things. He's either a liar because he said he was God, and if he's not, he lied. Or he's a lunatic. In other words, he's crazy. He thinks he's God, but he's not God. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he's a Lord. He's the Lord. In other words, he is who he says he is. And C.S. Lewis says, and if you think it through, it makes a lot of sense. Those are your choices of how you react to Jesus. And people choose different ways. Some people try to add a fourth option. Jesus doesn't really open the door for that. And as C.S. Lewis, again, this atheist professor, as he began to look at it, he said, no, I pretty much got to say you're lying, you're crazy, or you are who you say you are. And so I would just leave you with this question. Who do you say Jesus is? And some of your answers might be, I'm not sure yet who this Jesus is. Great, get to know him better. Reason with this. This is not a check your brain at the door kind of faith. This is a very reasonable thing. Engage our brain, engage our heart. Get to know this Jesus better and make up our minds. But for those of you who do say, I say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then go live like we believe that. That sounds easy, and your first thought is, oh, I gotta be nice to people. That's not really what it means to live like you believe that. I mean, yeah, you probably should be nice to people. But basically, what it really means is go live like this is not all there is. That you will live forever. That you will defeat death. And that you can follow Jesus Christ through the gates of Hades and into heaven. And if that's the case, when you look around here, all of a sudden it completely changes your perspective about this life. If a lot of Christians say I believe what Jesus said, but I live like this life is all there is. So the challenge is, who do you say Jesus is? And if you say he is the Christ, the son of the living God, then live like there's more than just this life. And you'll find that you can begin to be compassionate like Jesus and forgiving. It's like this 70, 80, 90, 100, 130 years, however long you're going to live. I'm not living that long. But however long you're going to live, that's just the beginning of eternity. It will radically change the way you think about your life, and it'll really radically change the way we think about our relationships. That's why the church has always been so appealing to the culture, is we live like there's way more going on than this, and it lets us be absolutely, just outrageously compassionate in the world. So, who do you say Jesus is? And if your answer, he's the Christ, then live that way. Live like you have nothing to fear from death or eternity, okay? And try the experiment on the elevator and see what happens. <laughs> see you guys next time.